This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. And if it's your first time with us in person or online, we're thrilled that you're with us. Uh, You're joining us in the middle of a series of messages that we've called Seek First. And so for the past couple weeks and the next several weeks, we're looking at what it means to put Jesus first in, in every area of our life. It comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus promises us, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be given to us as well. And, and so basically it's a promise of if you'll put Jesus first, he will take care of everything else. And so we started last week uh, by looking at what it means to put Jesus first in our thoughts. Uh, Today, because it is Labor Day weekend, we're going to talk about what it means to put Jesus first in our work. Okay, so Labor Day is one of those fun holidays where we celebrate something by not doing it, right? Uh, Like, hey, let's celebrate the American worker by as many people as possible not working. I don't don't know. I mean, the dad part of my brain was like, it'd kind of be like celebrating the 4th of July with no freedom. Um, you know, which if you've ever lived in a city where you can't set off fireworks, you know what that experience is like, right? Like, we are Americans. Let's, that's not the point that we're talking about, though. Uh, so today, we're going to look at what uh, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Colossians chapter 3 about the way we work and how we work. We're going to see what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 13 about the effect of our work and a, a new way of thinking about it. Um, but as we get started this morning, I'm just curious, how many of you would say in the last week, so from last Sunday to this Sunday, you worked? Okay, there we go. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about work today. What we mean is any area where you applied your energy, where you applied your effort, where you applied your skills to accomplish something that was either asked of you, required of you, or that you were responsible for. So work can be something that you receive a paycheck for, but it's not restricted to something you receive a paycheck for. You know, like, like I work at Christian Chapel, but I also work when I get home. I work as a volunteer in other areas and other organizations. You do as well. Students hopefully are working at school, right? We're, we're only a couple weeks in, so you should still have that energy. Um, parents work at home. People in retirement can continue to work. We work as volunteers. We work in all kinds of places. So this morning, whenever we say work, uh, if you think I don't get paid for anything, that's fine. There are still areas of your life where hopefully you're putting in some effort, you're putting in some attention, and that's what we're talking about this morning. According to uh, Gettysburg College, the average American will work 90,000 hours over the course of a 40-year career. So um, if you take that 90,000 hours over 40 years, that means you are spending one-third of your adult life at work. Uh, now, if you, if you kind of back that up, it probably holds true through childhood as well with all the time you spend at school. If you fast forward into retirement, it probably, maybe it goes down just a little bit, right? Because you, you maybe are doing a few more things that are, that are leisure and pleasure. But uh, still, if there's an area of life that is taking up one third of our time, we've got to think Jesus has a plan for it. Right, And so what we're going to see today is what the scriptures teach us about that, specifically how we work and why we work. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to one important aspect of work. And we find it in Galatians chapter, or sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where we are told we were created to work. So before sin enters into the world, God creates Adam, he creates Eve, he places Adam in the garden, and he tells him it's your job to work it and care for it. 
So the, the first idea we have to get out of our minds this morning is if we're going to seek Jesus first in our work, we have to understand we were made to work. Right? So, so we're going to push aside this idea of I will have really made it in life when I don't have to work anymore. Right? Like, like there is no foundation for that life in the scriptures. There's no foundation for this kind of hedonistic, I just pursue pleasure at all costs. I'm trying to live a life where it's all about me all of the time. You don't find that. In God's good and perfect creation, he told Adam, go to work, right? And, and then we assume when Eve comes along that she joins Adam in that participation. And so for you and I, we're understanding I was made to work, you were made to work. It might look different in different seasons, but it's always supposed to be part of our lives. All right, so if we're created to work, then our question is, well, well, how do I work and why do I work and what does it look like to put Jesus first in my work? So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. This morning is where we'll start in verse 23. Paul tells us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Now, uh, this passage, verse 22 and 23, Paul is actually addressing slaves. And so they are slaves who have become Christians, and some of them might have Christian masters, some of them may not. Now, we don't have time to get into uh, how Paul addresses slavery and how he deals with it in his society and how we deal with it in ours, other than to say Paul was against slavery, and everywhere the gospel flourishes, slavery always crumbles. Right? The two are incompatible. They cannot go together. And sometimes that happens instantly, and sometimes it happens over decades or centuries. But wherever the gospel takes root, slavery always crumbles. Because God created us as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ, which means none of us can ever possess any of the other. Okay, so, so kind of with that framework in mind, let's now consider Paul's advice to people who are working in less than ideal situations. Their freedom is not their own, and yet they still have a responsibility to work. And you would think Paul could maybe come in and say, hey, now that you are free in Christ, uh, just kind of do what you want for that guy over there, but don't really worry about it. But instead, he comes in to men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, living in slavery, and he tells them, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. So what we're going to think about this morning is if that is true for believers in such terrible circumstances, then it's also true for me in my work. Now, whatever it might be, whatever job you might have this morning, I guarantee you have a better setup than the people Paul is writing to in Colossians chapter 3. Right? And, and you might have the worst boss in the world. You might feel like you are underpaid and underappreciated and overlooked. And that might all very well be true, but you're still in a better setting and a better situation. And so what we're going to see then is what Paul is telling us here. So, so just real quick, he's saying whatever you do. And so, so we've always already said work is not just where you get paid. It's wherever you put your time, your energy, your effort. And this is what Paul is telling us. Whatever you do, no matter how significant or how insignificant it might seem. All of it fits in this category. And what are you going to do with it? He says you're going to work at it with all your heart. You are going to put all of your time, your energy, your effort into it. And he says why? Because you're doing it for the Lord, not for human masters. Right? And, and so if you kind of reverse the order of that sentence, you feel the weight of it again in a different way where he says, hey, because you work for the Lord... You're going to put all of your heart into everything you do, whatever it might be. 
right? Our foundation for work is not promotions or paychecks, but it's an act of worship for Jesus, right? And and so really what Paul is teaching us is your workspace is a holy place. No matter where you work, no matter what you do, your workspace is a holy place. Now, you, you might think, well, you haven't been to my workspace, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom. There is nothing holy about what is going on. It is dirty diapers, and it's diaper genies, and it's like Angie and I had a talk the other day. One of the greatest days of our life was when the diaper genie went in the trash, right? Like, those things, they say they capture the smell, I think they magnify the smell, and we would put it in the garage, and it's, I mean, you've been there, you've done that. It didn't really feel holy, right, when I was changing the diaper genie on a Monday morning to take it out in the trash. Maybe you have a job that it's just messy, and it's hard, and the people are difficult, and it doesn't really feel holy. Now, when we say your workspace is a holy place, it doesn't necessarily mean that you walk in and everything is crystal clean, and everything feels perfect and good. It means it's a holy place because you're there, right? Everywhere you walk as the son of God, as the daughter of God, everywhere you walk as the place where the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells, everywhere you walk, the Holy Spirit accompanies you in, and now that cubicle, that job site, that classroom, that medical facility is transformed by your presence and the presence of God in you in that space, right? So, so it really means you have to, you have to change your view of your job. In the same way that maybe, you know, we, we don't have a, a super like high church feel at Christian Chapel, right? But, but if you've ever been into these beautiful cathedrals that some other churches have, and you walk in, as soon as you walk in the back doors, there's that sense of like, this was built for something bigger than me. What Paul is trying to help us understand is whatever you do, wherever you go, wherever you work, that should be part of the feeling you have of this is a space, a holy place where God is at work. Now, if our workspace is a holy place, then it it means two things for us. First of all, it means you can't be lazy, right? You just can't be lazy. And this is what Paul is telling us. If you back up to Colossians 3, verse 22, he tells uh, the slaves, he says, slaves, uh, work hard all the time, not just when your master's eye is on you, right? And so for us as Christians, we have to embrace this idea of if we're created to work and we're supposed to work as unto the Lord, then I need to actually work, right? I can't be, as Christians, we can't be lazy. We can't be clock punchers. We can't be the last to show up and the first to leave. We can't do just enough to not get fired, right? We, we, can't, we can't carry that reputation. And and here's why. God has a plan to work through your work to build his kingdom in that place. But lazy people are terrible witnesses, right? I mean, think about the people you, I know you've never been the lazy person, right? I've, I've never been the lazy person. I've never been the clock puncher. I've never been the just enough to get by. But if you've ever known someone like that, were they someone you wanted advice from? Were they someone that you sought out when life was difficult? When you were dealing with some hardships, did you think, I'm going to go to that guy who can't get to work on time? I'm going to go to that girl who complains constantly. I'm going to go talk to the couple that steals from the company. That's who I want to be like. No, you never did, right? You, You never do. And so what we're thinking of is if our workspace is a holy place, we're working hard to earn a hearing for the gospel, 
right? You, you, you're, the way you work in those environments is the first thing people see because that's your primary role, your primary job there is to do your job. When you do your job well, it earns you a hearing for the gospel. As they begin to see there is something deeper inside of you, right? There is an underlying motivation that runs past your paycheck, that runs past your responsibilities, and they begin to see and sense that, they respond to it. My wife, Angie, is a, is a nurse, and she's worked in, in the emergency room for over 20 years now. Uh, for, since before we got married, she was working in emergency rooms, and so I have interacted with her coworkers when we lived in Springfield. I have interacted with them here in Tulsa, and when, whenever there's like a work party or things like that, and I talk to them, her coworkers, uh, they're always very kind and complimentary about her. But one of the first things they always tell me is they tell me what a good nurse Angie is. Right? Before they tell me how she's nice, before they tell me how they enjoy being around her, they tell me, hey, just so you know, your wife is really skilled at what she does. Like she knows her stuff. She provides good patient care. If we need to put her in charge, we can put her in charge. If there's a crisis, we know she can come in and she can help. If there's people who aren't getting along, she has the ability to kind of make him fix it and get along with each other. They always start with her skill, but then after they talk to me about her skill, they start talking to me about what they actually enjoy about her. Of, hey, your, your wife, like, she's a person of peace. Like, she brings peace into our work environment. They talk about how she, she loves us, right? Like, she's our coworkers who told her, Angie, one of the things we love about you is we know no matter how crazy we are, even though you're one of those church people and your husband's a pastor, we know you're always going to love us. And now, now what created that opportunity was her skill at her actual job, right? If Angie's running around the ER killing people, they're not really going to care what she thinks or about her relationship with Jesus, Right? And the same thing with you. You might have the purest heart in the world to tell people about Jesus, but if you're lazy and irresponsible with your job, nobody wants to hear it. Right? And, and so it's not just your grandpa and your dad who kind of drove this thought into you. If you're going to work hard, there's no laziness allowed here. It's actually a gospel principle of when we work hard, we earn a hearing for the gospel in our work. And so as followers of Christ, as in all areas of life, we live differently, we work differently. The, the other side of that, though, is if our workspace is a, is a holy place, then we can't worship our work, right? Work is a gift from God, but work cannot become our God. You can't sacrifice your faith, your family, you, you can't give it all at the altar of work. You can't look for all of your fulfillment, for all of your identity. Now, you know, some of us tend towards laziness. Others of us tend towards the other side. We're just going to be workaholics. We're going to be there all day, every day. We're going to be the first to show up, and we're going to be the last to leave, and we're going to feel a whole lot better about it and elevated over those who come later and leave before us. Right? And, and in those spaces, what Colossians 3 is reminding us is, hey, you work, but you work as unto the Lord. And so your work, your promotion, your, the way people see you, it can never be elevated over the place of Jesus in your life. And if there's ever a moment where your work comes in conflict with Jesus Christ, your work always has to bow to Jesus. If your work schedule prevents you from being an active participant in a community of faith, something's wrong. If your work schedule prevents you from being fully engaged in your responsibilities as a spouse or as a parent, something's wrong. If your work responsibilities challenge Jesus on the throne of your life, something's wrong. And what we learn again and again in the scriptures, what Jesus promised us in Matthew 6, is that anytime there's a conflict, if we will seek him first, he'll take care of everything else. 
So you might think this morning, you, you don't understand my job, you don't understand the pressure. If I don't do these things, if I don't show up at those times, if I don't make these sacrifices, I'm not going to get the promotion, I'm not going to pay the bills, I'm not going to climb the mountain, I'm not going to be where I want to be. And the word of Jesus to you is, seek me first, and I'll take care of everything else. I'll take care of the bills, I'll take care of the job, I'll take care of the provision. I will do it all. You can't worship your work. And now, now so, so we're thinking, we've got these two extremes. I can't be lazy. I can't worship my work. So how then do I actually work? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us a story of a farmer who's scattering seed. And I could summarize it for you, but it, it would take about as long as it does to read it. And in my experience, it's always better to let Jesus speak for himself uh, than to me, to me to try to say it better than him. So I'm going to read it to you. It's going to be a little longer. Hang with me. Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. And then we're going to skip down to verse 18 where Jesus explains the meaning of this story. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. Now, Jesus is, is telling us that people respond to the gospel in all kinds of ways. And so there's, there's two primary applications. The first application is we want to be good soil. Right? When the gospel is scattered in our heart, we want to be those that it takes root and it flourishes and produces an increased harvest. Right? We, we also want to understand that we don't want to be those that the gospel comes to our life and the worries and stress of work and everything that goes with it chokes it out and keeps us from Jesus. So, so that's one, and if we had more time, we'd go down there. But, but for now, I want to think of the second kind of secondary application of we are all supposed to be like the farmer in the story of scattering seed everywhere we go. All right, so wherever you work, here's the way I want you to think about it in the next week or two. When you go into work, not tomorrow for most of you, when you go into work Tuesday, you're a farmer, right? And if you're, if you're getting paid, if you're going to school, if you're working at home, you're going to a volunteer organization, you walk in like a farmer. Right? And so as a farmer, you can think of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, like your job is to cultivate and care for the land where God has placed you. And that means the people, and that means the projects, and that means all the things. But I also want you to think your job as a farmer is to scatter seed wherever you go. And that seed is the gospel. So, so let's think of it this way, okay? Let's say this container is you and your work, okay? And, and the better job you do at your job, the more people want to know why, and the more they're going to get engaged. And, and you know internally the motivation for your work is not just I want to get paid, it's I want to worship Jesus. And so as you do a good job at work, it kind of lifts the lid off of your life. 
And as they begin to see, hey, you do really good with all this stuff, and they begin to know you, and they begin to talk to you, you're able to start to tell them, well, it's not just me. It's, it's actually what's inside of me that causes this. And you're able to tell them about the peace and the joy. And what happens is you're actually then scattering that seed all around. Now, instead of seed, we have starburst, right? Fruit of the Spirit. Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? There we go. Pastor Cream's preaching about the fruit of the Spirit. I expect you to have some starburst up there in the next few weeks. I don't, it just, it works well. So, so here's, here's what I need for you right now. If you can catch, pay attention. If you cannot catch, cover your eyes. Okay, that's, that's no judgment here. If I see you sitting out there, I appreciate it. But you're just going through, and as you work, you're scattering seed. You can't control where it goes. You can't control what happens to it. Way in the back, you're scattering seed, right? All the way in the sound booth, you're scattering seed. You're going everywhere to everyone. You're gently scattering it there to some who are a little closer, right? Everywhere you go, you're just doing a good job. Cover your eyes if you can't catch, right? Just do a good job. You show up on time. What happens? You scatter some seed. You're a teacher. You put in a little extra effort with that kid. You're scattering some seed. Right? Everywhere you go, it just happens over and over and over and over, and you don't know where it goes or what happens. But what, what's Jesus telling us? When you're the farmer, are you supposed to go up and be like, Nathan, I have something for you, but I'm not giving it to you unless I know you're good soil. Prove you are worth the red starburst, because we'll throw the yellow ones at anyone. Prove you're worth the red one. Like, I, I, need, I don't just need 30-fold. I need 100. That's not it. The farmer just scatters. And when the farmer scatters, some seed falls on soil that, where it doesn't take root. Some seed falls on soil where it does take root. Some seed falls on soil where it produces a massive increase. Now, for, for some of you, I know you work in jobs where your ability, you think, to scatter the seeds of the gospel is restricted. Where you think, hey, I, I can't just walk in and be like, Jesus died for you, you pagans, and you need him, and if you'll follow him, and let me talk to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and like, you, you just know I can't do that. Like, I'll get fired tomorrow. But here's the thing. When your workspace is a holy place, as you work, God creates opportunities for you to scatter that seed. And your job is just to scatter it. Your job is just to live for him. Your job is to let the fruit of the Spirit well up and out into the community around you. Right? And some of it is going to fall on the floor, and it's not going to be paid attention to, but some of it is going to be grass. Some of it is going to be internalized. And some of it is going to bring life change. And, and sometimes God lets us see that. And other times we never know the part we played in somebody else's story. Now, I, this morning, we could spend the next 15 or 20 minutes saying, hey, if you work this kind of job, here's how you can scatter seed. If you work this kind of job, here's how you can scatter seed. If you serve in these places, here's how you can. But instead of that, uh, I want to share a story with you. So it's a story of one of our Christian chapel educators, um, and it's a story of, of Wesley Burns, who you heard from earlier this morning, and how God used uh, one of our teachers at Christian chapel to just plant the smallest seed of hope and gospel in his life, along with some other teachers along the way, to bring him to a point of transformation and letting that seed take root and flourish to where now he's willing to say, hey, I'm going to pack up my family. We're going to move to Japan. We're going to give our lives to tell people about Jesus. So if you'll turn your attention to the screens, we'll watch that together. Hi, my name is Wesley Burns, and this is my story. You know, I grew up in a house that was full of depression, was, was full of abuse, was 
very much not a happy place. I had a stepdad who was extremely uh, physically and verbally abusive to me that constantly reminded me that I was never going to be anything. Uh, my biological father had, had died at a really young age and um, the first time that I ever even saw his face was, was at his funeral. And so I battled with um, not knowing who I was or where I came from or who I was supposed to be. The only thing that w was, was told to me was that it wasn't going to be much. As the years went by, you know, that, that those feelings kind of grew. I remember other kids' parents, even when I was young, not wanting their kids to play with me. And so from a really young age, I had this perspective of myself as, as less than everybody else. Once I started realizing that there was a way that I could change the way I felt, that I didn't have to experience this pain anymore, you know, I, I bought into this lie that, um, that I could live and experience happiness through drugs. And so from a young age, I, I think about 13, I, I started smoking pot. And very quickly, pot wasn't enough. Um, just within probably six months to a year, I started doing methamphetamine. I was, I was drinking as much as I could. I was huffing air duster. And before long, that is what my life looked like. There wasn't a moment um, that I was awake and conscious that I was not trying to get as high or as inebriated as I possibly could while still being alive. Ended up getting in a lot of trouble uh, with the law and, and my drug habit grew and grew and grew and so I needed money to feed this drug habit so I started robbing people, started breaking into businesses, breaking into cars um, on a daily basis just to feed this, this drug habit, to feed uh, this thing that, that was really giving me the only piece that I had in my life and that was, was getting high. Um, I would come to school and, and just be miserable because I couldn't use during school and I had a few teachers that, that saw what was going on with me, that could you know see the depression and could see the anxiety that I was battling. I was pretty much convinced at this point that my life wasn't gonna get any better. You know, my dad was an addict um, who died at a young age and, and I kinda just felt like that was gonna be my life too. I had one interaction that, that, that stuck with me, um, that stuck with me most of, of my teenage years and, and even, even now and that was uh, in Mr. Byler's eighth grade class. And uh, I don't know why, because it wasn't that profound of, of a thing, or you wouldn't think it is that profound, but I remember sleeping in his class and him uh, just, just saying, don't do drugs, Wesley. <laughs> he just looked at me and said, don't do drugs. And I thought that he was insulting me at first. I thought that he was almost being mean, but then I looked at his face and I could tell like he wasn't making a joke, you know, he wasn't, laughing at me. You know, a couple of other students like laughed when he said it, but I, I realized, you know, that, that, that he wasn't making fun of me. He was telling me that I was heading down a path that was going to destroy my life. So uh, I knew Wesley Burns uh, first from being his teacher uh, in eighth grade um, at middle school. And I know one of the things uh, about Wesley was I always noticed um, he stayed extremely quiet. Um, whenever he was around the classroom and so forth. And um, I do remember one time um, just, I think he'd fallen asleep on the desk or something. And um, I, I come to try to get his attention, you know, and uh, he pops his head up and it's just this wide-eyed but blank stare, you know. And, and uh, my, my heart hurt for him because um, I knew there were things going on. And I just tried to say something to him just along the lines like, 
you know, Wesley, don't do drugs, bud. And um, tried to do it quietly enough where it wasn't a, a big issue and hopefully not a lot of other kids hurt or anything, um, of course, but that's as far as I could take it. And then um, after eighth grade, I taught, you know, I taught Wesley and then I moved into an assistant principal position uh, where I was actually at the high school Wesley was at a couple years later. And uh, I was not his assistant principal because they divided it up by alphabet, but I, um, I was next door to his assistant principal. And Wesley would visit that office from time to time. And I would see him walking by, usually with another buddy or something like that. And it was just, it was uh, very disheartening because I knew the Wesley I saw in eighth grade where I already had some concerns. And then I saw the Wesley who was now at high school and things were only magnified or seemingly worse. I, I will be the first to acknowledge that um, I was disheartened and it hurt um, to see him. And, and I care about a lot of my students that way. Um, but he was one of those where I honestly felt like that's a lost cause. You know, he's, he's gone. You know, his, his mind's not there. And, and I remember thinking that, and I'm ashamed to admit that somewhat because I have a faith in Christ, and I know with God all things are possible. That's not just to be cliche, uh, it's true. Uh, but at that point in time, I remember seeing him and just thinking, he's gone. Mr. Byler and, and Ms. Roberts, you know, were, were two teachers that I felt like understood what I was going through, um, or at least paid attention. There was. There was a lot of people, a lot of adults in my life at this time that I felt like didn't even notice what was going on. Um, only when I got in trouble was I, was I given any attention. And so it was just so nice knowing that there were some people that, that cared. You know, I didn't have to be making good grades or be in sports to have um, their attention. I ended up dropping out of high school. I was already on probation at this point for a, a couple years. and. Um, I continued to get into trouble, continued to rob people, continued to just live this life of addiction and crime. I bounced from boys' home to boys' home and, and juvenile facility to juvenile facility until I turned 19. Um, ended up meeting Lindsay, who's now my wife, and, and we fell in love very, very fast and ended up having a, a son. Um, Lindsay got pregnant when I was 22 years old, uh, still heavily drinking at this time, still heavily into drugs, and, and two weeks before he was supposed to be born, I ended up getting arrested for shooting with intent to kill and assault and battery on a police officer. And I had been in enough trouble at this point in my life to know that I wasn't getting out of jail anytime soon. And after six months of sitting inside Rogers County Jail, just, just praying to God that, that he wouldn't let me be robbed of, of, of knowing my son, that he wouldn't um, have to grow up like I did without a dad. And the only reason I did is because I had a, a few examples of, of what a good life could look like, you know, like Mr. Byler and, and Miss Roberts and some of these people who tried to sew into me um, while I was in school. And, and so I cried out in, in this jail cell for, for God to deliver me. God ended up letting me beat this case and I ended up getting uh, off on, on five years probation. And you would think that this that's where this story starts to get good, but it, it's really not. I got out of jail, and um, you know there was so much shame and so much guilt that I that I was carrying. You know the news made me look like this this crazy crazy guy, and knowing 
that that's who I was, knowing that, you know, I had this feeling, you know, your stepdad was right, all these people who, who thought you were going to fail, all these parents who didn't want you playing with their kids, you know, they were all right, you know, you're kind of just this scumbag, this is all you're ever going to be. Carrying all this, all this guilt and, and all this shame, it just intensified my drug addiction to a level it never was before. Um, I started using heroin every single day and, and not, not smoking it, but in, injecting it. And it got to the point where I'm no longer using heroin to get high, but just to keep from getting sick. And one night, I remember me and Lindsay uh, were both using and Lindsay overdosed and she started to turn purple. In my mind, I was thinking like, this is, this is your fault. You're gonna have to live with this for the rest of your life that you, you brought these drugs in, into this house and, and your wife is gonna die right in front of your son. You just, you just stole his mom away from him. And that was the lowest point of my life. Um, that's where I finally realized that I need help. God ended up leading me to a place called Sunrise Adult Teen Challenge, which is a 13-month uh, Christ-centered discipleship program. And God got a hold of me there in, in, such a, in such a radical way. And I, it was like I was introduced to Jesus for the first time. You know, I started reading the Bible. I started listening to these men who had once been crack addicts and heroin addicts, just like I was, explain to me the gospel. And I could see the, the, the fruit in their lives, you know, in their families. And, and it, was, it was this thing that I wanted so badly. And um, ended up graduating the program and, and taking a position to work there um, in 2017. And, and then just a couple years later, I ended up becoming a licensed Assembly of God minister. And then just a few months after that, we got approved to be missionaries to the nation of um, Japan. A friend of mine, who's also a pastor at our church, uh, texted me out of the blue and said, hey, do you remember a guy named Wesley Burns? And my heart just sunk when he, when I, when he texted me because in my experience, when I get a text like that about a student that I haven't seen basically in a decade, um, it's usually not good news. And I, and I actually just said, I said, man, I said, I'm afraid to ask. Uh, yeah, I, I remember why. Um, and, and I get goosebumps just thinking about it. He said, well, <laughs> I'm having lunch with him. Um, he's going to be a missionary in Japan. And, um, you know, God got a hold of his life, basically. Uh, that is the summary of that conversation. And it was, it was, uh, it was encouraging uh, to me. Um, you know, for public educators out there, when you feel like you're, you're restrained and you can't speak about certain things that have to do with Christianity, it was encouraging for me to think that um, God can still get a hold of kids' lives even if you haven't had an opportunity to specifically speak the truth of a living and loving Father to them. We're going to finish by receiving communion this morning. Hopefully you got that as you came in. If not, there's some at the, the table in the back for you. But what I want you to think about, I mean, I, I love Wesley's story. I so appreciate him telling it to us. I, I love Dave's participation in it. Um, I remember the day Chris Godfrey came back. He's like, you're, you're never going to believe the lunch I had and the connection we made to Dave. And just everyone's mind was blown. But what I want you to think about is, is if your work is kind of the shell that earns you a gospel hearing. Right? There might be spaces, like Dave as a teacher, where, where kind of all you can do is just drop these tiny little seeds of hope. 
these seeds of life, these seeds of, man, there's a greater plan. And in this setting, I might be restrained from telling you the fullness of it. But I promise you, when you plant gospel seeds, God helps them find fertile soil. And you might not be the one that gets to see it come to fruition. You might never get the moment like Dave had where, hey, 10 years later, I get to hear this amazing story of transformation. But sometimes you do. Sometimes you're the one that the seed has been planted and others have watered it. And then God allows you to be there when he makes it grow. For Wesley, that was a teen challenge when he stood and and there were guys there just doing their job. They were doing their job and they were telling people, hey, I used to be where you are. And then Jesus set me free. And as Wesley and other men like him came and said, I want to know about the difference. In that setting, it it wasn't just little drops and hints, but they were able to reach in and they were able to say, let me tell you about the life-changing power of Jesus. And and what they did in the same way that I've got two communion cups in my hand, they were able to say, what he did for me, he'll also do for you. And all you got to do is take it. All you got to do is reach out and accept it. And as they do, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in Wesley, now dwells in those that you work with. And so what it reminds us of is we never know where God is working. So we just have to keep working. We got to keep showing up. We got to keep doing our job. We got to keep scattering those seeds of the gospel. So my prayer for you this week has been two things. One, that if you find yourself in a place of addiction and hopelessness, that Wesley's story serves as a reminder to you of there is freedom and there is new life that's possible. And we're going to give you a chance in a moment to receive Jesus as your Savior to begin walking that path of new life. The second thing is that if you work in whatever capacity that God will transform your work and you will begin to see the kingdom potential of every customer, every client, every coworker, every boss, every student, every classmate, every teammate, every member of your family, every person in your neighborhood. These are not just people that you go to exist with for one third of your life. They are sons and daughters of God that he has a purpose and a plan for. That kid sitting and sleeping in the back of your class might be the one God chooses to take the gospel to people who desperately need to hear it. That boss that you think is the worst jerk in the world has a heart that's bound up in sin and needs to know the freedom of Jesus. That neighbor that you don't know want anything to do with, they're the one that is going to cause a generational difference in their family. And the cycles of dysfunction and disease and divorce are going to end with them because you share the seeds of the gospel with them. See, your work is never just work. It's never just a paycheck. It's a holy place where the Holy Spirit exists. And as we receive communion this morning, what we're remembering is what Jesus did, he is still doing. And he's not just doing it in me, but he's doing it through me. He's doing it in the world around me. He has come to draw sinners to repentance. He has come to bring life to those who are dead. He has come to give sight to the blind and set the captives free. And he privileges you and I to participate in that process with him. So this week, when you do your job, you are doing so much more than that. You're planting kingdom seeds everywhere you go. 
you're sharing kingdom life in every spreadsheet and project you tackle. Everywhere you put your time and energy in, the Spirit works through you. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we come to you today. God, we need to be reminded of your transforming power. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are here who don't have a relationship with you, who are stuck in sin, who feel hopeless and lost. Today, Lord, may they hear the good news of the gospel, that you have come to set the captive free. You have come to bring freedom and life, to wash away every sin, and to welcome them as your sons and your daughters. Today, Lord, we celebrate and receive your salvation. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us of all the filth that's brought with us, and you would help us to walk in the freedom of life that you have come to give us. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have chosen to follow you and we're walking in that new life. Today, as we receive communion, may it be a reminder to us that everywhere we go, you're at work. And in everything we do, your kingdom is advancing. God, help us to see our world with the kingdom potential that you see. In Jesus' name, amen. We receive the bread with me. And the cup. stand with me. The band's going to lead us in a final song this morning, this morning, reminding us of God's ability to make a way in every season and situation. If you need someone to pray with you, maybe it's to begin that relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's to see the kingdom significance of how you're spending so much of your time every day. If you'll head out those back doors and to your left, we'd love to pray with you. If you're online, you can do that at christianchapel.com prayer. The rest of us, let's sing this, this final song. It's just a, a celebration of God's ability to bring light and life into every situation. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.